Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Legalese. My name is Amina. My name is Chase. Amina and I are co-hosts on the Legalese podcast. In this first episode, we are joined by Dr. Stephanie Linquist, who is Deputy Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs at ASU. She is also a Foundation Professor of Law and Political Science, who is considered an expert on the U.S. Supreme Court and constitutional law. We are also joined by Dr. Joseph Rusamano, whose teachings and research have largely focused on First Amendment Law and Theory at ASU's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Thank you both very much for taking the time to be here today. They bring with them expertise on the Constitution, specifically free speech on college campuses, which our Legalese team carefully chose as our opening topic here today. And we chose this topic because it's so pertinent in today's day and age where we have protests happening, the heckler's veto, and... The entire purpose of an education system is to learn, and we find ourselves in the unfortunate position of sometimes not being allowed to learn, or students are finding themselves where they can't even participate in classroom discussion because free speech is being stifled. Uh, when we avoid some of some issues because they make people uncomfortable or they might offend, uh, we're really limiting the scope of ideas, which is not to say that all ideas have the same merit, but considering that this is a podcast, we did think it was very important to start this podcast by discussing the importance of free speech uh, from both a legal and administrative perspective for a campus. All right. Dr. Rusamano, I'd like to just go right in and, and begin uh, our discussion today with a quote by Brett Stevens that you mm -hmm. included in your article, uh, Speech on Campus, How America's Crisis and Confidence is Eroding Free Speech Values. So here it is. If you can't speak freely, you'll quickly lose the ability to think clearly. Your ideas will be built on a pile of assumptions you will never, that you've never examined for yourself and may thus be unable to defend from radical challenges. You will be unable to test an original thought for fear that it might be labeled an offensive one. And this leads me to our first question today. Why do we care about free speech? Is it to think clearly? Well, I think, it, I mean, part it is. Uh, and, and given the fact that you invoked the, the Stevens quote, I'll, I'll play off of that. I, I, I think what he is, is speaking to is the notion that uh, unless and until we are in a position to be able to uh, discuss and debate various ideas containing various viewpoints and of a marketplace of ideas perspective, uh, that, that without that, the development of thought 
uh, is is stifled. It's it's uh, it's aborted in, in in many respects. And so I think what what he's touching on there, and, and a point that I concur with, as you say, given that I used it uh, within my piece. Uh, is is this notion that that without that ability to uh, to openly discuss debate uh, exchange ideas that that our thinking is is limited to and uh, I don't know if you want to go from there in terms of the the role of the university uh, that it can play in that dynamic or if you want to uh, wait a moment on that. Yeah, I mean, we can go there because my follow-up question to that is uh, how do we get to that point? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, does it start with our education system? Because there are issues there as well. Um, but ASU is a, a great example of how to, how to implement um, free speech and just for students to understand their rights and to educate themselves and, and remain open-minded. And can they, I mean, here on a from a student perspective, we're able to communicate with each other, um, and there's a free flowing of ideas, and that helps with the marketplace of ideas. I think yes. that's why we're, we're we're number one in innovation, whatever that <laughs> ranking may mean. I know there's a lot of uh, you know laughter around that, but I, I think it means something, and mm -hmm. I think it's because of that we're able to speak to each other and, and come up with ideas. And, and if I can even add to that, yeah. um, in addition to education, is it ensuring that we value it? Because it's one thing to learn about free speech, but I mean, that's always kind of been a quintessential American value since our founding. And I feel like, or it seems that in recent years, we're starting to lose the importance of that. I mean, even in seeing Berkeley go from the birthplace of free speech, uh, quote unquote, to now they're not letting Ann Coulter speak because of the heckler's veto. They're having to pay $600,000 to stop or to, to protect Ben Shapiro. Uh, the number one victim of anti-Semite uh, attacks on the internet uh, for being an alt-writer and things like that. Um, have we lost that as a value and can we fix that by education or is it something different? Well, uh, I, I think uh, institutions of higher education uh, can play a leadership role in, in that regard. I don't think that's the only place that it happens, but uh, you know, I think one of the things that universities and, and colleges are obligated to do is, is to uh, allow what their values are to permeate uh, their communities and society beyond. Uh, as, as you probably know, Arizona State, for example, has a commitment to social embeddedness, and I think that's that's part of, of, of what that means, is is we can play a leadership role. We, we should play a leadership role uh, across a lot of values, uh, one of those being free speech and, and, and the value embedded within that. Uh, but to take that beyond uh, the borders of our campuses and to, uh, to demonstrate uh, outside of our environment, uh, how important that is. I'd be happy to add something to that. And I, yeah. First, I want to say thank you for having us here today. And uh, it's a privilege <clears throat> to be here with Professor Rusimano, who's been really instrumental in bringing um, these issues to the forefront at ASU and helping us develop uh, some uh, events on campus to discuss these things as well, of a as, a, as well as a conference on free speech on campus. So I just want to thank him for that. Um, I, uh, I do want to make a point about the importance of free speech and uh, the importance of encountering and engaging with alternative ideas that may not be those that you perhaps uh, share. 
Um, I always tell my law students that you really can't be an excellent lawyer until you can argue both sides of a case. You really need to understand the opponent's arguments so that you can refine your own to be most effective. And to be sure, I think, that your position is actually a valid one, whether it's arguing on behalf of a client or developing your own perspective on an issue of public importance uh, or what have you. So I, I do think this clash of ideas that we think about when we talk about the marketplace of ideas is essential to refining critical thinking skills. And I think that is why uh, we, we have been very, very strongly advocating free speech here on, on this campus through a series of events that we've held over the past year in connection with a new school that we have, the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, mm -hmm. which was, you know, which, which is, have been focusing on the issues and the challenges uh, on campus now with free speech. So I just wanted to make a point about the importance of engaging with alternative viewpoints. In our polarized society now, as we know, the media will feed us exactly what we want to hear, and it's far more comfortable to hear our own perspective rather than the opponent's or alternative perspective. And so uh, we really need to force ourselves to, to engage with alternative viewpoints. Uh, great. And uh, Dr. Lundquist, are, are you familiar with the event that happened at um, the Middlebury campus? Uh, with Dr. Charles Murray. Um, mm -hmm. So for those of you guys who don't know, uh, Charles Murray is an economist uh, who has thoughts on, uh, you know, kind of scientific ideas of uh, race and IQ and how that translates into uh, earning potential later on. Uh, one of the professors at Middlebury uh, agreed in, in that same light to go up and essentially refute his principles. Uh, we're not here to even discuss those principles, but uh, what happened on campus was there was a heckler's veto, they stormed the building, and uh, the teacher who was there to actually say, no, these are bad ideas, we're in the marketplace of ideas, mm -hmm. these ones are bad, here's why, was actually injured in the, in the exchange. Uh, from an administrative perspective, uh, what efforts, or what happens here at ASU that makes either that not occur, because... I mean, I've had some controversial events here, even having guns on campus and things like that, and we've never run into any of that. Uh, the administration well, must be doing something really well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have the highest fire rating. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that acronym stands for. I Foundation have. for Individual Rights in Education. Excellent. Thank you so much. You we, in it. fact, had the fire CEO or one of their senior leadership team here for our conference recently at the law school. Um, and the reason for that is because we've been very careful in crafting our university policies to ensure that they do not chill free speech the, to the greatest extent possible. Um, and so that has been a focus of ours. I do think that ASU is a very special place um, because we actually have 40% uh, of our student body uh, are uh, minorities. So it is, it is a place that is very diverse. We also have about 10,000 international students at ASU, as you may know. Yeah. So the diversity of the community, I think, in some ways helps us to be open to alternative perspectives and viewpoints because we are encountering them on a daily basis on the campus from the entire globe. And, and I think that's what creates a unique atmosphere here. Now I'm not, you know, certainly other universities have diverse student bodies, but, but there truly is something about ASU in terms of our orientation toward education, uh, toward globalism, toward uh, inclusion. I think that has promoted a, a space, a, a set of norms that, um, that fosters free speech and a willingness to engage in alternative perspectives. So. 
I might add that uh, in, with regard to the Middlebury uh, incident, uh, the professor at Middlebury that you mentioned, uh, Allison Stanger, was here at mm -hmm. ASU uh, about a month ago now uh, as part of the, the conference that Dr. Lindquist uh, re referred to, the, the speaker series. And uh, she, as you may know, has been very articulate uh, in, in a lot of speaking uh, uh, events as well as two op-eds that she wrote in the New York Times in the aftermath of, of the Middlebury incident. But I think, you know, one of the things that, that she shares and, and that we've seen uh, documented elsewhere is uh, a, a situation that was allowed to uh, build and fester on that campus uh, for some time leading up to the Murray event. Uh, and uh, one might argue that those uh, those simmering uh, feelings were were not adequately dealt with leading up to the event, uh, and then that contributed to what ultimately happened there. When I think of uh, universities kind of not even dealing with those, but in almost stoking those fires, uh, images of Berkeley uh, offering pre-event counseling and uh, safe rooms with literally coloring books and crayons and blankets and soft pillows. Um, ASU obviously doesn't do that. We either have a harder student body or uh, an administration that sees that the need to protect students doesn't necessarily outweigh or protect students' feelings doesn't necessarily outweigh the importance and the value of free speech. Um, have Dr. Lindquist have conversations like pre-event uh, counseling or any of those ever uh, come up in in these discussions? And uh, since we obviously haven't implemented those, or at least I don't believe mm -hmm. we have, uh, why why was the decision made to? avoid that route and I think ultimately uh, take the right course. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I've, I've only been at ASU for a year and a half. I can say that I've never been involved in any conversations about pre-event counseling. So as far as I know, uh, that does not take place here. I will say that we are very, you know, as a university, we try to be as caring as possible toward our students, obviously. We want to ensure student success. Um, our charter uh, mandates that, that we are evaluated and judged by, not by whom we exclude, but by whom we include and how they succeed. So we take that very seriously in terms of promoting student success in the classroom and in their academic engagements and enterprises. Um, as far as this sort of, uh, of activity, that's not something that, again, that I am aware of has happened on campus. Um, I, 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 I would say um, that, that Campuses are, are, do face, in some circumstances, again, not here, but in other, other universities, are sometimes stuck between a rock and a hard place in the sense that they do need to protect students' safety. I mean, that is a valid concern, very much so. Um, the, the, the problem arises, as I see it, and I'd be interested in Joe's perspective on this, and this is a point that was made by Floyd Abrams, who was a very famous First Amendment uh, law scholar, has argued multiple cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, and he made the point that, yes, universities do need to be vigilant about, about student safety. But in that vigilance, they cannot exercise uh, a veto authority that is v not viewpoint neutral. In other words, if you want to ban all speakers on campus for safety's sake, that's fine. But you can't ban some speakers and not others based upon their particular viewpoint. And I, I very strongly endorse, endorse that view, recognizing that, that universities you know, do have uh, to ensure that their students have a safe environment to learn. So it, it, it can be a very tough set of circumstances for universities. Joe, is that, is that a 
What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and in fact, uh, when Floyd Abrams was here and I had the, the privilege of being able to interview him uh, as part of that event, mm -hmm. uh, I recall one of the things he said is that we, we need to remind ourselves that universities and college campuses are not public parks. Mm -hmm. we, we can't uh, perceive them. We, uh, the, the, the legal uh, analysis uh, with regard to campuses can't be uh, as uh, the same as we would view a public park in that, in that traditional public forum. Um, and yet, uh, so I, I, I think in, in part what he, what he was suggesting there is, uh, is, is there can be, as in multitudes of environments, there, there can be limitations on speech. You know, I, I don't think anyone is suggesting, you know, it's a free-for-all and every but one can, can speak at once. Uh, uh, quite, quite the opposite. We do need to maintain some order. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded by, by your question of, you, you mentioned safe spaces. Uh, there's also the concept of trigger warnings, mm -hmm. microaggressions, and, 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 and dealing with those that uh, has been deemed necessary on, on, on some campuses. Um, the, I, I think the, you know, the problem uh, surfaces in, in that regard when uh, it's mandated by university administration that faculty members must uh, comport themselves in a particular way. And, and why that becomes problematic is because, by definition, that means that the, the faculty members, and for that matter, some students' uh, speech is being limited. Uh, it seems to me that, the, that uh, and, and I don't want to be dismissive completely of, of those kinds of concepts of trigger warnings and the like, uh, I, I do think there is some validity uh, in the students who have voiced concerns uh, in, in those regards. But, but I think the, it seems to me the proper solution, and, and this is going to be radical, mm -hmm. air, air quotes around the word radical, is uh, compromise. Uh, I, I, I think simple, simple uh, respect on the part of faculty members for students and their well-being uh, without any mandate from university uh, administration is, is the proper uh, approach there. Just be respectful of your students. Students need to be respectful of one another and hopefully their faculty members as well. And uh, I, I think that we can address that without any uh, formal limitations on speech rights. So this actually perfectly leads into the next question. Um, so it sounds like so far we can consider universities to be entities that have the capacity to regulate free speech. Uh, and we've already started to talk about some of the limitations. And indeed, no constitutional right is without limit limits. So at what point might it be appropriate for the school to formally uninvite a speaker that was invited by a sanctioned student org in light of you know, protests or you know, uh, creeping up of certain um, statements around campus that you, you kind of know that something's going on and it might, it might be trouble. Um, what, what, should a, what should a college do then? Well, I don't, I, I, I'm happy to respond to that by saying I, I, I would think the way that I would handle that is to look on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, again, being very sensitive to the notion that viewpoint neutrality is critical to this. In other words, there would be, have to be and there should be um, considerations for student safety that are neutral in nature. Um, and that the, the, I think the concern from the community has been outside the universities that universities are not viewpoint neutral. 
And I think we do need to address that. There is a, uh, not to deviate from your question, but there is a, a substantial percentage of Americans today who believe that universities are actually damaging our society. And in large part, I think that's because they, they, they view universities as non-viewpoint neutral, um, or at least not embracing alternative perspectives on the campus. And in fact, I think that's a, an, a, an extreme perspective. I think obviously that universities have multiplicity, especially a place like ASU, has a multiplicity of alternative uh, uh, students and faculty who have many, many different viewpoints. But I do think we need as a university to, to um, to herald our achievements in terms of promoting an open dialogue. And that's part of the reason that we at ASU created a series of speakers and a conference to focus on this uh, particular topic. We invited people from all over the nation to come and discuss it from all viewpoints. Uh, for our, so our speakers ran the gamut, and that was true also at our conference. And I must say, and Joe, I, I found both the speaker series and the conference to be incredibly interesting because we had wildly divergent viewpoints about this. They were expressed on the same panel and I actually moderated one. And the conversation that took place on those panels and after those panels was some of the most exciting intellectual conversation I've seen. Because we sort of forced people in a sense, or they felt compelled to really engage with the questions uh, at issue. So, um, so back to your point, I, I think, you know, I, 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 I certainly, I'm not going to lay out a general rule here, but I do think viewpoint neutrality is important. So. If I can ask a follow-up, mm -hmm. uh, related to the viewpoint neutrality, but uh, more towards journalism, uh, there's been a clip that's gone viral in the last week, um, a, a girl speaking about how journalism gives voice to the voiceless. It's a form of activism. Um, there's an impression that universities aren't viewpoint neutral, and I think that same impression uh, has been uh, put upon uh, national you know, media. Uh, what do you think is the role of journalism in facilitating free speech? Is it activism? Is it every, you can't get rid of your biases? Uh, just, I was wondering if you could mm -hmm. talk a little bit to that issue related to the uh, viewpoint neutrality of a large organization like a university or mm -hmm. journalism at large. Uh, sure, your, uh, your questions there uh, uh, take a uh, semester-long course to, <laughs> to address, but I'll, I'll do my best to, uh, to be concise in, uh, in, in addressing some of that. Uh, you know, in, in its traditional form, I guess we could say, uh, journalism is not meant to be activism. Uh, it is meant, as the cliche goes, as one of many cliches goes, to hold a mirror up to society and culture and, and show the citizens uh, what is happening in that society and in that culture, to do it as objectively as possible. Now, notice I didn't say to do it objectively, but as objectively as possible, because what that recognizes is that none of us can be purely objective. We, we try our best. Uh, and, and we try our best to filter out any biases that we may have, any po political leanings, political inclinations, and so forth. But we try to, uh, to present facts uh, and, and, and let the people judge for themselves what to make of those facts. Now, is it true that the way those facts are presented, the way they're arranged, the way they're juxtaposed against one another, uh, may have an influence on how people receive those, of course. Uh, 
uh, and that's you know arguably where some of those biases might start start to fil filter in. Um, you know, I, I could make an argument, for example, that uh, you know content on a particular news network is largely facts, but someone else might say, well, the way they're being presented and the, how they're framed and so forth is presenting a, a particular point point of view. Um, now. Uh, to what extent does journalism uh, embrace the notion of, of, of First Amendment values, free speech, and free press? Uh, 100%. <laughs> I mean, we are free press. <laughs> we are free speech. We have, we are, uh, we have the right to, uh, to express, uh, when I say we, I mean journalists and journalism, have the right to express what they want and Almost without limitations, uh, any way any way they want. Now, obviously, there are those limitations include laws like libel and, and privacy and so forth that, that need to be uh, adhered to. Uh, but journalism, uh, again, in its traditional form, is not meant to be a form of, of activism. But if citizens uh, decide to utilize the products of journalism and are motivated to become activists based on what they read or hear or view, then, then that is fine. Great. Yeah, let, me, let me just comment also on, on in following up on Joe, um, the relationship sort of between journalism and the university in effect. Now we have an excellent uh, 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 journalism school here at uh, fortunately named after one of the, um, you know, one of, the, one of the most remarkable journalists, Walter Cronkite, that we've ever seen in the United States, who had such an important it, it role to play in, 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 in bringing Americans together to see the world. You know, the, the, he really was the spokesman in many ways for the news industry. Um, what's happened in, in journalism, I think, is uh, a breakdown in civility in some context. Now, it's not, and it, wh whether you label that journalism or not is the open question. Um, I think it becomes simply a, uh, a place where people can see sparring between two opposing sides, but there's never any consensus sought, and it's not particularly civil. And I, and I think, uh, and we see this on television all the time, unfortunately, and it's a, it's a byproduct of, of a very polarized society, and there are many reasons for that, and I think it's something we really need to address as a, as a polity. But, um, but what the university can do, I think, is, is teach students and faculty, frankly, and staff, everyone there, how to engage in a civil dialogue. And it's only through a civil dialogue that we will reach sort of common ground. Um, when it becomes uncivil, it's a deeply unfortunate um, because we will not be able to have that kind of intellectual engagement where we can refine our own ideas in light of the alternative perspective. So I really see universities as a, as a, um, a forum for these, this civil dialogue. Do you think, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if I, if I can piggyback just momentarily on that and going back to what uh, something Dr. Lindquist raised previously, and that was the, the conference uh, that we had on this campus, uh, this campus and, and Tempe uh, split, um, and, and how intellectually stimulating that was to see these divergent viewpoints expressed and done so in, in a civil way. I, I, I think you know, one of the big takeaways from that was that we can do this. Mm -hmm. we, we, we can engage you know, across uh, political obstacles, barriers, uh, and, and other kinds of, 
um, uh, challenges. Uh, we, we, we can do this, and I think it really illustrated, uh, again, the role that the university can play in, in demonstrating to uh, the mm -hmm. world at large uh, how this can be done. See, after, after hearing you both, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering now, is, is social media a problem? Uh, especially for journalism, because you're right, uh, journalists, I'm, I'm going to say this very delicately, journalists used to have a more respectable name, um, you know, sev several years ago, mm -hmm. and more recently, um, it, it's, it, it's been bashed by many, many people, um, um, political figures, students, the list goes on, and I think that's unfortunate because I really do think that you get you should get public discourse through journalism, and I think that it should be upheld and, and put on a pedestal in that way, mm -hmm. and I think it, it provides many opportunities for people to engage, but I'm, I'm thinking that social media is the issue in that it doesn't bring people together. It's a double-edged double -edged sword. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, advertised as it's yeah it's advertised as bringing people together. You can connect with people more, but no, it's actually I think it's showing to to um, kind of force people to shut themselves in and yeah. and they're becoming mm -hmm. bullies on the other side of the screen yeah. and they're not really facing people. And it's it's really sad because you 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 have great ancient societies like Greece where people come together for public discourse, and you had Socrates. Socratic discussions and and these it's things. It's harder to insult people right to the face. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and, yeah. and I, but I think yeah. ASU is doing a great job to still bring people, faculty, and students together, and even the public. There are people from the that don't even attend mm -hmm. the university that come and see these panels that you're talking about. This is an open campus. It's accessible. It is. The first two floors. We I want believe. it to be. Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. And yes. and I'm and I'm so I'm so pleased to even see people here at at the um at our building just come in and I'm like, are you a law student? They're like, no, I'm just. A, I mean, architecturally, this around. was designed to be open to society, which is it's lovely. The View Center for Law and Society, very very you know intentionally designed that exactly. Way. And yes. I and I love that. But I, I'm wondering if social media is a problem, and I and I. I and how can journalism push back on social media, kind of driving it to that reputation that I think it needs to remove itself away from, if sure. that makes any sense? Yes, it does. Um, well, I, I think, uh, again, another uh, question with a lot embedded in it. Uh, let me do my best here. I, I think it's uh, vitally important to make the distinction between journalism and media. Uh, journalism has a set of values, uh, including, as I mentioned earlier, striving for objectivity, uh, that a lot of forms of media do not adopt. Um, and I think that's one of the problems that you're suggesting that social media may, may have. I mean, social media is used by a lot of people, the vast majority of whom are not journalists. Okay, mm -hmm. so, uh, and, and, and those people, they certainly have the freedom to do so, but I think it's vitally important to keep in mind they are not journalists and they are not presenting information as a journalist would and, and should. Um, you know, you ask if social media is a problem. Well, to some extent, yes, but I would point out that, you know, as, you know, throughout the history of mass communication, as every new medium came along, uh, there were extreme concerns about each one. Um, and uh, and over time, 
to some extent, those uh, concerns were addressed. I mean, we still have them. It's still not, not a perfect world by, by any means. But one of the things we've learned through that history is uh, every medium can be used well, and every medium can be used poorly. Every medium can be used for good. Every medium can <laughs> be used for bad, for lack of a better description. Mm -hmm. And it's what we as individuals and as a society decide to do in how we, how we utilize those, those media. Um, you know, there's been a lot of writing on this, uh, and among the people who have addressed it is Cass Sunstein, who is a, a legal scholar, uh, including on, on First Amendment issues. And one of his concerns has been, uh, does uh, internet-based media including social media. Uh, and podcasts. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> enhance a deliberative democracy, or does it uh, hurt and detract from a deliberative democracy? Uh, if I'm reading him correctly, I think he largely comes down on the side of being concerned about this and, and saying, you know, echoing many of the things that you said, Amina, is that, you know, it, it creates an echo chamber, you know, we isolate rather than engage. So, uh, again, so much of it depends on how we decide to use those media. How, it's, it's such a shame and how ironic that, that a technology that enables, that could enable kind of a grand localized democracy to be nationalized, so to speak, in, in, in that way, um, actually has is a double-edged sword and has these kind of consequences because people utilize it in a way, they're, they're separated from the other and they can, they can I mean, I've, I've, they can flame them or whatever the, te yeah. whatever the terminology is. And, and, such, and it's so, so unfortunate. So it's a shame that that uh, technology has not been harnessed in such a way. I think it's that we saw in my generation when this was unfolding and we saw the internet and the opportunity to speak to people in real time all over the world or all over the country, we viewed this as a great opportunity to, to create a deliberative democracy that really did engage all viewpoints in real time everywhere. <laughs> and, um, and unfortunately, it, it is not necessarily rolled out that way. So, See, I'm, I'm optimistic in kind of what uh, you were saying just a minute ago. I, I actually think we're in a state of adolescence when it comes to social mm -hmm. media. New technology. We're relatively new to it, and as with all technologies, there are going to be problems that come up. Uh, the Gutenberg Bible, well, now the common people can read uh, and determine God for themselves, yeah. and uh, the authorities didn't like that. And we run across that all the time. But I think we're just societally immature when it comes to the internet. I mean, it, it's almost, we're throwing temper tantrums on the internet, but I, I feel like we will progress and grow. Our, the quality of social media, I'm optimistic, will improve and actually uh, potentially displace a lot of the old mediums, uh, much as television did to some newspapers and uh, stuff like that. Uh, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic Despite seeing the, the problems, I know one side of the, the sword is a little sharper than the other at this point, but uh, Steve Simpson at the Ayn Rand Institute talked about that's because the people who can use it for good are being outnumbered by those who aren't. Well, so, it appears to be easily manipulated, too, um, by forces outside of our control, as we've seen with Facebook, et cetera, and yeah. So it's, you know, that's, that's a, a worrisome thing because it will it will breed skepticism on people's part about what's actually being communicated. And now photographs can be so easily doctored. It really is sometimes hard to understand and figure mm -hmm. out 
whether the, the perspectives being offered, the facts being offered, the, you know, the photographs, et cetera, being offered are real um, and not manipulated by some puppet master in the background. Very yeah. worrisome, yes. Well, I think that's why I really commend what ASU is doing, what you're doing, what Dr. Rusamana is doing, because you're, you're really trying to bring people together through these conferences and these uh, speeches and these panels that that are open to the public and not just the students, because mm-hmm. I really, I, I'm starting to, to think that the issue might be of um, confusion going back to the way our education system is right now. I mean, if I wasn't in law school right now, I wouldn't really know, I mean, I would know about the Constitution, but I wouldn't understand the text, and I wouldn't be aware of many of the nuances mm-hmm. in the text. And unless you're a political science major <laughs> during your undergraduate experience, I don't think you're going to be exposed. So I'm, I'm I'm really thinking that um, at the forefront of our nation's heated debates and the issues right now that we're facing, it, it really is the because a great majority don't have access to these things. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if, you know, ASU putting on all these wonderful panels, that's kind of a way to bring the public into what we are so privileged to know and to learn. Well, I think we have the U.S. Constitution actually posted in all the classrooms at ASU. So we are very engaged with the text. And I, I happen to know, you know, I teach constitutional law, and in my class, as my students will report, uh, we look at the text every time we engage with it in any case that we study. Because I actually went through law school and did not actually look as much at the Constitution <laughs> as I think I should have. So, um, so yeah, so we, you know, I, I think you're right. I'm, I think that the university is a place where you can, this is the point, right, of being here uh, to, to learn about our fundamental documents, our foundational documents is very important, but also understand how they've been interpreted over time. So, Well, and I, I would just add, you know, as, as you're bringing it back to the, to the campus environment, um, you know, I, I think another challenge, uh, and again, uh, we, we don't have this at ASU to, to any extent that I'm aware of, but uh, you, you have constituencies of student groups uh, whose members uh, uh, have uh, gone down the rabbit hole of what some call identity politics uh, or, or even tribalism. And uh, it creates a situation where it's really an us versus them sort of dynamic, and it becomes uh, extre- an extreme challenge to try to uh, break through that, you know, to break that ice with, with those people and to, uh, to get them uh, to a place where they will even consider listening to uh, viewpoints that don't comport with, with their own. Uh, so I think that remains nationally uh, a challenge. Yeah, we have we have a series of echo chambers, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in some mm-hmm. respects. Uh, Dr. Lindquist, uh, a question, kind of administratively, as a professor uh, of law, mm-hmm. um, we've seen instances. Uh, there was the Evergreen Campus with uh, Brett Weinstein, mm-hmm. who was. You know, obviously, teachers have to have uh, academic freedom. Freedom of speech is kind of incorporated, or academic freedom is incorporated in the free speech portion. But then we also have student groups that you know come bursting in and shutting him down. And uh, ultimately, he had to he resigned from the university and had to leave. And I mean, he's a he was teaching evolutionary biology, which is not something historically considered to be a a politically divisive uh, topic. Uh, so I, I'm curious, just 
from your perspective as a teacher and an administrator, where do you draw the line? How do you balance the, the comp potentially competing interests of the free speech of students with the free speech and academic freedoms for professors? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think with, this, with the, the case of Brett, who actually was on my panel at our recent conference here at ASU. This conference was great. Yes, it was. Um, he was very interesting because he did make the point that he's a scientist, so his, his actual viewpoints on politics were irrelevant in the classroom. And as a general matter, um, that, you know, the, the free speech that extends to faculty in the classroom is really the free speech they have to, to in, their in their discipline, to pursue alternative viewpoints in the discipline, but it's not necessarily, I mean, I, I, at least for me as a faculty member, in my classroom, I try to uh, ensure that students are, are actually completely unaware of my political biases, because everyone has some, um, and that they come away puzzled and questioned, asking, you know, sort of with a question mark over their head about whether I'm a Democrat or Republican. I don't want them to know. Um, and I, I would like to think, that, that there shouldn't be clashes, there should simply be dialogue between faculty and students. But in the classroom, it's about the discipline. It's about, it's about communicating the knowledge that has been de developed in that particular discipline. Um, it's not really, I mean, to, at least for me, it's not about my opinions about my own political viewpoints. Um, so I, in that sense, faculty, I think, have academic freedom to, to communicate the knowledge in their discipline but not to indoctrinate students in their particular worldview, you know. And Dr. Rusimano is a teacher as well. Uh, care to add on to that? Uh, I, I certainly echo uh, the, those sentiments. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate the academic freedom uh, that, that I have as a, as a faculty member. I have never in 25 years of doing this have been uh, you know, called in any way on uh, that I've that I've gone uh, over a line uh, of any kind. But but I do think it's important, as Dr. Lindquist said, to you know to stay w within within the, the discipline. Uh, I, I will say maybe one place where where we do diverge a bit is uh, while initially in my career I adopted the standpoint of never to tip my hand with regard to any personal feelings in the world mm -hmm. of politics and, and, and so forth. Uh, while now I, I still don't make a point of, of doing that, but if it comes up in the conversation, uh, I've come to a conclusion that as part of personal transparency, uh, that I do let it be known if it, if it is applicable to a situation, to a conversation, or to a topic of, of where, I, where I stand. Just so so that students, I think, will have a better uh, perspective on on what I say. Uh, I, I think they should know that. But but by the same token, do I stress the fact, uh, and I and I mean this sincerely when I when I say it, that uh, that all viewpoints are welcome and and we should we should feel free to to discuss those. And and I'm not going to go. Uh, to the mat, so to speak, mm -hmm. on on defending any personal mm -hmm. standpoint, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, an inappropriate power play uh, in the classroom. Uh, you know, that the that students should have should not have to be subjected to. Both of those are very interesting dynamics because on the one hand, uh, like in a research paper, sometimes you write out and you say, you know, here's the biases I'm coming to this project with, mm -hmm. uh, so you can frame 
the results and you can see the way I've interpreted it, you kind of understand that going back. But on the other hand, you also don't want to bias students. Oh, you know, she's a Democrat or she's a Republican and we have this tribalist. Uh, well, now I have to disregard what you say. <laughs> so it, it's yeah. really interesting. And uh, I like the, the way that and both of those ideas have tremendous merit. And uh, I bet both of you, when dealing with your students, uh, you know, take that carefully and take that, that potentiality for more than uh, just teaching and uh, avoiding the indoctrination. I, I feel like both of you have put thought into it and uh, take great efforts to uh, not do that. Well, I mean, I think the point is, and I know Joe shares this, is to ensure that in your environment it is a place in which students feel free to express their opinions. That, that's what matters, and, and then shape those opinions in light of the, the kind of information that we're imparting in the classroom. So, um, so I know we both have that objective to ensure that students feel comfortable uh, stating what they think. Fantastic. Yeah. We're running up against the clock here, so, so Amina has one yeah. more question for we'll, you guys. We'll, we'll end on this note, this last question. Does freedom of speech go beyond our Constitution, meaning is it a fundamental right not to be silenced? And you can opine on this. <laughs> Speaking of being silenced. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, yes, I, you know, uh, I, I think maybe implicit in, in your question, although I don't know if this was intended, is uh, does free speech exist outside of the United States where there is no First Amendment? Uh, some countries protect speech and press in some way, but, but as you know, I'm sure, uh, there is no place uh, in the world that, that protects it. Uh, like uh, the United States does, mm -hmm. given our Supreme Court precedents and so forth. Uh, so yes, it, it does. It does go beyond the, the First Amendment. I think there is, uh, you know, we we one way to to go with that is to uh, observe and recognize that there's a, a spirit of the law approach in addition to a letter of the law approach. Uh, I also think maybe implicit in your question is, you know, is is it a natural right? Um, exactly. You know, is it a human right? Uh, to that, I would uh, give an emphatic yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think the American tradition is that it's inextricably tied up in democracy or that democracy is dependent, a true democracy is dependent on those free speech rights. They're, they're inherent in the concept of democracy and democracy cannot be successful without them. That, that doesn't mean without those rights. It doesn't mean that free speech is, is an absolute. Um, Justice Black, I think, was one of the few absolutist free speech uh, advocates, but but certainly it does mean that to the extent you can maximize it, it will also maximize um, people's democratic uh, opportunities. So, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I thought that this was a, a great place to end because I, I'm really thinking that with all the protests happening, and I think the reason why people are so passionate about free speech on college campuses is because it really goes back to it's a it's a natural right. It's something ingrained in us to to speak and to communicate freely. Um, but also it's fundamental to producing a, a functional democracy. Exactly. Yeah. Well, only the individual knows what the individual's interests are, and we mm -hmm. are aggregating individual interests in a democracy. So it's very important that the individual, through a majority rule system, it's very important that the individual have the opportunity to express those interests in order for them to be represented in policy that's ultimately produced by the democracy. So well, it's you. critical. Thank yes. you both so much. You, you really uh, helped us navigate the tools necessary to... <laughs> To, to address free speech on college campuses. Well, it's been and a pleasure, a privilege. Thank, Thank you so much for inviting me. I agree. Thank you, you, Thank you very much.
Dr. Rusimano, Dr. Lindquist. Uh, we will have your bios published uh, on our website so that if anybody uh, wants to look at uh, your academics, uh, they can pull that up. And uh, with no further ado, uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off. This is Chase Turrentine. This is Amina Keshin Kamal. And thanks for tuning in. Thank you.